Greetings once again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Charles Hatton Spurgeon was born in 1834 and he died in 1892. He was a particular Baptist in the United Kingdom and preached for most of his life in London. He remains highly influential among many evangelical Christians and was a renowned figure both in his own day and since for both his faithfulness and his fruitfulness. In this podcast, we try to work our way through the sermons that were preached and then printed in the series that became known ultimately as the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit after the place from which Spurgeon declared Christ. Our focus is not so much to zero in on Spurgeon himself, but to look through Spurgeon's eyes, as it were, and to feel with Spurgeon's heart concerning Jesus Christ. He was a gospel preacher par eminence, and that's what makes him still so valuable to us today. Over the course of this week, we've been reading the uh, daily sermons. If you're following along, it's been Sermon 864 through to 870, and our featured sermon this week is 867, and that's entitled Tearful Sowing and Joyful Reaping, and you'll find it in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Volume 15. Spurgeon's text is Psalm 126 and verse 6, He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And incidentally, if you want to keep reading with us, uh, you can read on in the regular sermons. Next week it will be 871 to 877, and our featured sermon, a representative text, which is the subject of each podcast, is Sermon 876 on the Unwearied Runner. So if you can only read one sermon next week, 876 will be it, the Unwearied Runner. But back now to this sermon that was delivered on the 25th of April, 1869, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle at Newington in London. He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And the the topic is in many ways typical of Spurgeon's concern for Christian labour, its fruitfulness as well as its faithfulness. So he begins with a simple statement that the whole of our life we are sowing. In activity, in suffering, in thought, in word, we are always scattering imperishable seed. It's the very nature of Christian living. And they who sow unto the Spirit, as a rule, he says, have to sow in tears. But their reaping will so compensate them that even in the prospect of it they may dry their eyes, reckoning that these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in them. Spurgeon tells us there's a conquering power in the heart's tears in prayer. You shall have what you desire when you desire it unto weeping. Take the anguish of your spirit to be the premonition of the fulfilment of the promise. Now, he doesn't mean by that that as long as you feel enough and cry enough, God will give you what you ask for. That puts the the divine glory in in hock, as it were, to some kind of, well, semi-sanctified pester power. No, what he means is that when prayer moves us even to tears, when we're taken up with the things which God lays upon our souls, even to the extent that we're ready to break our hearts over them, 
then we can be confident that that we're praying and that God will be ready to bless. We need to be careful that we don't slide into the idea that if I feel enough or shout enough or cry enough, God will give it to me. But Spurgeon's emphasis is on the fact that, that prayer needs to be heartfelt and earnest. And one of the ways in which that can be sincerely demonstrated is by a heartbroken weeping in our praying. So we're apt to think that one form of service is enough at a time. Perhaps it may be so, but if we can add another, our blessedness will be doubled. To shed tears, says Spurgeon, and yet to sow, to be racked with pain and to turn the couch into a pulpit, to make the sick bed a tribune from which to tell of the love of Christ, oh, this is a blessed thing. So sometimes our praying is, uh, our weeping in prayer is, is because of our ongoing sufferings. But then I doubt not, he says, that the text may be so read as to imply that the heart sorrow of men engaged in the Lord's service shall help to secure to them, from the hand of divine mercy, a double reward. Those who can sow while yet they weep shall, beyond all question, come again rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. So he's moved from the, if you like, the the weeping of those who cannot work and says that that is not in itself empty or worthless to the weeping of those who do work. And he wants to then consider this text in its relation to every Christian worker. Now, in the course of the sermon, he he does slide toward pastoral ministry, evangelistic preaching, uh, but his intention, at least, is to apply the text to every Christian worker. And he's going to do that under these three headings. Again, a typically Spurgeonic Uh, breaking up of the material. First of all, describing the service. He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed. Secondly, the contemplation of the reward. He shall come again with rejoicing, bearing his sheaves with him. And then in the third place, the certainty which like a golden link binds these two things together, the weeping service and the rejoicing success. So then, the chosen worker for God, the service of this person, the man who shall reap an abundant harvest. It's said of him that he goes forth. And Spurgeon asks, what is intended by this going forth? And he gives us a number of answers to the question. And then he moves on and weeps. And what does this mean? And then he bears precious seed. And what does this mean? And then when you come on to the success, he does something similar. So he's explaining, he's expounding the text. He shall come again. He shall come again with rejoicing. He shall come again with rejoicing with sheaves. So that by the time we get into the application, and you'll you'll know if you're following along how Spurgeon really applies as he goes, and then as it were, lays it on when we come to the application, you'll see that he's trying to, as as so often, explain these words so that the, the truth is what grips us and not simply some human notions. So let's go back then to this chosen worker for God. He goes forth. What is intended then by going forth? Spurgeon's first assertion here is that this chosen servant of God has received consciously a divine commission from heaven. He goes forth from God and he goes back to God. He says it's a sin beyond all others for a man to take up the ministry as a mere profession and to follow it as though he might have followed something else. I remember the saying of an old divine who was asked by a young man whether he should enter the ministry. He replied, not if you can help it. No man has any right to be a preacher unless he is one who cannot help it. 
Now, uh, Spurgeon is sometimes criticised for for repeating and insisting upon this counsel that if you can do anything else but preach, you should do it. I think this is in part a, a reflection of Spurgeon's high view of the ministry and of the need to be uh, persuaded, uh, not just that you've got a, a semi-holy gift of the gab, as it were, that you can you can talk and you're a Christian, but then there must be some measure of, of compulsion, a sense of obligation, this vocation, this idea of a call into the preaching ministry. And Spurgeon goes on that you Christian people have all a duty, you have all responsibilities, but your duties and responsibilities somehow or other never move you until they take the active form of a vocation. And he says, I would to God that every Christian in this church felt that he had a call as from the Christ of God exalted on his throne to go out and tell others of the way of salvation. Now, we've emphasized, first of all, Spurgeon's sense of a vocation in terms of the preaching ministry itself. Now he's saying, I wish all believers had some sense of this obligation to go and speak of Jesus Christ. He's not saying he wants everybody to be a a preacher in the formal sense. Not everybody should be an evangelist with a capital E, if you like. But all of us who are truly evangelical ought to be evangelistic. We should want others to be saved and we should feel that we have a part and a place to play in the work of getting the gospel out. I wish, he says, that the men and women who have here banded themselves together in a sacred confraternity felt every one of them commissioned of God, each one according to his ability, that's the important qualification, to pluck brands from the burning to rescue souls from going down into the pit. Then going forth from God seems to imply, he says, that the work has been with God in prayer. We must go fresh from the mercy seat to the field of service if we would gather plenteously. Our truest strength lies in prayer. I am persuaded, brothers, says our preacher, that we are losing much of blessing which might come upon the church through our negligence in private supplications. I cannot pry into your prayer closets, but I believe that in the conscience of many of you there will be an affirmative voice to the charge I lay against some of you. Ye have restrained prayer before God. Your restraining of prayer, if you seek to serve God, is binding your own hands and cutting the sinews of your strength. So get close to God, for strength flows out of him. Keep at a distance from him, and you lose all power and become weak as water. Going forth implies also that a man has been in communion with God. He's looked into the face of God and his spirit has been lifted up accordingly and he's, it's manifest that he's been in his presence. It refers to whether the man is to go as well as to the place from which he comes. He that goes forth, that is, away from the world without the camp. And he brings it back to the Lord Christ. There was no man who was so manly, so man so unlike a mere monk or separatist as Christ. He ate and drank just as other men did, and yet there was something about his character which distinguished him altogether from the whole mass of humanity. He had gone forth evidently without the camp, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. So now he's shifting on from the idea of coming forth from God's presence in communion and and prayer as a commissioned person, also now to the idea of going out from the world. 
Common religion, he says, has become nowadays so cold and dead and sleepy a thing that unless you can come out of it and get above it, you cannot expect to be one of those who shall come again rejoicing in abundant sheaves. Aspire, then, to be something more than the mass of church members. Lift up your cry to God and beseech him to fire you with a nobler ambition than that which possesses the common Christian, that you may be found faithful unto God at the last and may win many crowns for your Lord and Master, Christ. We live in a, a funny age when there's this oh, strange shift, I suppose, taking place, or at least this tension between, on the one hand, this desperation to be special and, and uh, to stand out from the crowd, and on the other hand, this almost willingness to sink into the mass. There's a... <sighs> It's interesting how many people want to be individual, but they want to be individual in the way that all the other individuals are being at the same time and in the same place, which isn't really individuality. And Spurgeon says, why don't you, why don't you pray that God would give you a distinctiveness, even among saints, that you may stand up and stand out as one who follows closely after him? And he says the going forth may also refer to that particular field of labour to which God has called you. As when the day dawns, the labourer goes forth to plough in the field, so the consecrated man hastens to his department of service. So we've got the, the going forth as from God, we've got the, the going forth as from men, and we've got going forth into service. And Spurgeon says, I'm inclined to think that there is a version of these words which may be very useful to enterprising believers. He that goes forth, and he says here, it's going beyond the range of this ordinary labor, he shall find a double harvest. The most successful servants of God have been those who've not builded upon another man's foundation, but have ventured to break up new soil. There comes very little reward to me, he says, from preaching to the many who regularly attend this tabernacle. A staggering statement considering the thousands listen to, listening to him, but he says it's because the most of you have heard the gospel so long that if there were any probabilities of its converting you, in all likeliness you would have been converted long ago. The probabilities seem to be that the soil upon which the seed will germinate is already sowed and only rock remains, that the elect of God have been gathered out of my congregation, and that we may not expect in our ministry to see great results in the future among our older hearers. His application is that Christian workers should reach out after those who've been thought to be beyond the range of hope, to go forth. Seek to convert those who've been neglected, he says. Let it be the effort of Christian people to go after those that nobody else is going after. The best fruit will be gleaned from boughs hitherto untouched. So there's this going forth from God as one who's been in communion with him, from the world as one who is distinct from other men, going forth into that particular field of labor to which God has called you, and then going forth beyond where others might have been willing to go. And then the next word is, and he weeps. He takes it that is in the first words he goes forth, we see a man's mode of service, so here we note a little of the man himself. The man likely to be successful, he says, is a man of like passions with ourselves, not an angel, but a man, for he weeps. But then he is very much a man. He is a man of strong passions, weeping because he has a sensitive heart. The man who sleeps, the man who can be content to do nothing and is satisfied with no result, is not the man to win sheaves. 
God chooses usually not men of great brain and vast mind, but men of true-hearted, deep natures, with souls that can desire and pant and long and heave and throb. It's a great thing that makes a genuine man weep. Tears do not lie quite so fleet with most of us, but the man who cannot weep cannot preach. At least if he never feels tears within, even if they do not show themselves without, he can scarcely be the man to handle such themes as those which God has committed to his people's charge. If you would be useful, dear brothers and sisters, you must cultivate the sacred passions. You must think much upon the divine realities until they move and stir your souls that men are dying and perishing, that a hell is filling, that Christ is dishonoured, that souls are not converted to Christ, that the Holy Ghost is grieved, that the kingdom does not come to God, but that Satan rules and reigns. All this ought to be well considered by us, and our heart ought to be stirred until, like the prophet, we say, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears. So the useful work of a Christ is a man of tenderness. The weeping shows you what kind of man it is whom the Lord of the harvest largely employs, a man in earnest, of tenderness, in love with souls, wrapped up in his calling, carried away with compassion, who feels for sinners. In a word, says Spurgeon, he is a Christ-like man. He's not a stone, but one touched with a feeling of our infirmities, a man of heart, ready to weep because sinners will not weep. Every effort that the man makes portrays to him his own want of natural strength. Well then, may he weep. He never teaches in the Sunday school class, never prays at the sickbed, but that he feels ashamed when he's done his work that he did not do it better. He never takes a little child on his knee to talk to it of Jesus, but he wishes that he could have spoken more tenderly of the sweet gentleness of the lover of little children. He's never satisfied with himself, for he forms a right estimate of himself, and he weeps to think that he's so poor an instrument for so good a master. So whether we're going onto the streets, or teaching in the Sunday school, or standing in the pulpit, or engaging with a friend, do we never go away and think, Oh God, have mercy that I did not speak more lovingly, more clearly, more tenderly, and more effectively. So he weeps because of himself. And then he weeps because of the hardness of men's hearts. Heralds of the cross have to do a deal of rough work and toil on. For the gospel which ought to be welcomed is rejected. And as there was no room for Christ in the inn when he became incarnate, so there's no room for the gospel in the hearts of mankind. And this makes us weep, since where, there sh- where should there be so much readiness to accept, there's so much obstinacy and rebellion. The worker weeps because when he sees some signs of success, he's often disappointed. Blossoms come not to be fruit, or fruit half-ripe drops from the tree. He has to weep before God oftentimes because he's afraid that these failures may be the result of his own want of tact or want of grace. I marvel not, he says, that the minister weeps, or that any worker for Christ bedews the seed with his tears. The wonder is he does not lament far more than he does. So here is a man then who goes forth. And he goes forth weeping because he's conscious of his own need, conscious of his dependence upon God, conscious of of how frail he is, conscious because the the hardness of men's hearts, conscious of the, the disappointments that come in the work. But then he bears precious seed. And this is the special point of all true success. For there's no soul winning by untruthful preaching. 
We must preach the truth as it is in Jesus. Workers for God must tell out the gospel and keep to the gospel. We must sow for God solemnly and in right good earnest because the seed is precious, more precious than we can ever estimate. So work for God, dear brothers, he says, as those who know that the truth is a seed. Do not speak of it and forget it. Don't tell the gospel as though it were a stone and would lie in the ground and never spring up. Tell it as the truth is in Jesus with the firm conviction that here is life and that something will come of it. So here is the the going, here is the weeping, here is the bearing of the precious seed. And that brings us then not just to the service, but to the success. For it's said of this man, he shall come again, he shall come again with rejoicing, and he shall come again with sheaves. And if you're thinking we haven't made much progress, if we're only getting to the second point, you're right. Spurgeon knows it as well, and the third point's going to be super brief because of how much time he's used up expounding and applying these earlier points. So, he shall come again. What does this mean but that he shall come again to his God? And this the worker should do after he has laboured. Some workers can see souls converted and take the honour to themselves, but never that man who sowed in tears. He's learned his own weakness in the school of bitterness, and now when he sees results he comes back again. He comes back to God, for he feels that it's a great wonder that even a single soul should be convinced or converted under such poor words as his. Oh, I know some of you have had your sheaves. Dear brother, beyond a doubt, if you had those sheaves as a result of a holy vehemence in prayer, you'll be sure to come back with a holy ardour of thanksgiving and lay those sheaves in their honour and their praise at the foot of the God who gave them to you. He shall then, doubtless, come again. That means he'll come back again to heaven. He went forth from heaven. He'd been in communion with God and now he goes back to God to commune with him again in thankfulness because there has been a blessing. There's a straight road to heaven from the most remote field of service and in this you may rejoice. And that comes to the, to the matter of rejoicing. Take the whole text, says Spurgeon, wrap it up together and it seems to me to say that he shall come again rejoicing even in his very tears. I reckon that at the last, when Christian service shall be done and Christian reward shall be rendered, the toils endured in serving God, the disappointment and the racking of heart will all make raw material for everlasting song. Oh, how shall we bless God to think that we were accounted worthy to do anything for Christ? There's not a single drop of gall then which will not turn to honey. There's not this day one drop of sweat upon your aching brow but shall crystallise into a pearl for your everlasting crown. Not one pang of anguish or disappointment but shall be transmuted into celestial glory to increase your joy world without end. But the main rejoicing will not even be in connection with our tears but in in connection with our success. Oh, you Sabbath school teachers, he says, if you go forth as the text has told you and I've explained to you, you shall not be without fruits. I've heard heard many discussions, he says, among my brothers about whether or not every earnest labourer may expect to have fruit. I have always inclined to the belief that such is the rule and though there may be exceptions and perhaps some men may be rather a saver of death unto death and of life unto life, yet it seems to me that if I never won souls I would sigh till I did. I would break my heart over them if I could not break their hearts. If they would not be saved and were not saved, I would almost cry with Moses, blot out my name from the book of life. 
though I can understand the possibility of an earnest sower never reaping, I cannot understand the possibility of an earnest sower being content not to reap. I cannot comprehend any one of you Christian people trying to win souls and not having results and being satisfied without results. See, Spurgeon's not the kind of Calvinist who uses the providence of God as an excuse for inactivity and passivity. He hasn't become a kind of evangelistic fatalness, fatalist. Well, what will be will be, and if, if those who are appointed to eternal life believe, so be it, and if those who don't, don't, then I suppose there's nothing I can do about it. No, he goes forth sowing and he goes forth weeping, and like Rachel, he cries, give me children or I die. Now, do we have that kind of disposition? Do we have that kind of appetite, that kind of desire, that eagerness to see sinners being saved? And we might say, well, I, I'm not with Spurgeon on this. I don't think that everybody can be guaranteed fruitfulness. But, but don't you see how that itself can breed fatalism, that we actually stop expecting anything? And rather than just simply not believing that there's a guarantee of fruitfulness, we start to believe that there is no likelihood of fruit. And that it's wrong. That's unbelieving. And that will, will damage both our spirits and our prospects of serving with gospel success. But we must press on. The last point's coming back, rejoicing with sheaves. He comes back, not just with a sheaf or two on his own back, but with the wains behind him, the wagons at his heels, bringing his sheaves with him. And are they his sheaves? Yes, they all belong to the worker, though they all belong to Christ and are God's. It's a kind of sacred property, he says, which God acknowledges in the case of men and women who bring souls to Christ. I'm persuaded, he says, there's no love in this world more pure and crystal, more celestial and enduring than the love of a convert to the person through whose agency he or she may have been brought to Christ. So souls are saved through God's word. Yes, but Christ prays for those who shall believe through their word, that is, through the word of his preachers. And the apostle gives much honour to workers. So there's an honour in this. We bring our sheaves God gives them to us and they become ours. And so when the, the workers go out to win souls, the sheaves are their sheaves. They threw themselves into the work. They made the work their very life. They wept and cried and pleaded as they sowed. And now God doth not come in to take away all property in the sheaves. But as they come back, the workers have an interest and a share in all the results of the blessed gospel. And God makes those sheaves their sheaves. He gives them honour in the sight of men and angels through Jesus Christ, his son. And now he says, I must just rapidly launch these laconic hints with regard to the golden link of doubtless. Uh, what he means is, I haven't got much time, so I've got to speak quickly and briefly. The true worker will be a reaper. He says, if you're a true worker, you will be a reaper doubtless. Why? First, because the promise of God says so. My word shall not return to me void. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Secondly, God's honour in the gospel requires it. You can almost hear him just uh, rolling off uh, the, the headings on his sheet of paper in front of him and then a sentence or two of explanation. If there be a failure and you've preached the true gospel rightly, it will be the gospel that will fail and then God's attributes are all wrapped up in the gospel. It's his wisdom and his power 
And shall God's wisdom be nonplussed and God's power be put back? Again, you must reap because the analogy of nature assures you of it. The poor peasant whose little stock of corn is all but spent takes a little wheat which is very precious to him and with many tears he drops it into the soil in the wintry months. But God gives him a harvest. In due time, in the mellow autumn days, he gathers in the sheaves which reward him for his self-denial. It shall be so with you. God mocks not the husbandman. He appoints the seed time and he brings round the harvest. As he doth not change the ordinances of nature, so he will not change the ordinances of grace. Be satisfied with this. And then moreover, Christ, the model of the Christian life, assures you of this. He went forth weeping, sowing drops of bloody sweat, sowing with pierced hands and feet that dropped with blood. He went forth sowing living seeds of love, and they are springing up today already in the glory and in the multitudes that are gathered into it. And soon in the coming and the superior splendor that shall envelop it, the Christ who sowed in tears will reap in joy. Even thus it must be with you. And then, to take further comfort, remember those who've gone before you in this service who have proved this fact. He wants you to remember Judson and the thousands of Karens that this day sing of the Saviour whom he first taught to them, or, or Moffat in his old age, still serving there in Africa and not without glorious seals to his ministry. He talks about the Baptist mission work in Jamaica and the South Sea Islands. The multitudes turned to Christ during revival seasons in our own land and in the States. And he says, whether you're thinking of a Judson or a Moffat or uh, our own missionaries, up you labourers, you sow in hope, so broadcast and enlarge your spheres. Up you desponding ones who are wrapping your cloaks about you and seeking consolation in indolence because you think your toil too desperate. Up, I beseech you, for the harvest comes on. Oh, miss not your share in the shouting and the rejoicings, but you will so miss if you miss your part in the weeping and in the sorrowing. Would God I could put zeal into your hearts, but that I cannot. May the Holy Ghost do it, and as a band of Christian men, may we be resolved that henceforth, while we live and until we die, we will, with passionate longing, with all the forces of our manhood worked up and strained to the utmost pitch, seek to tell the good news of Jesus crucified to the sons of men, knowing that our work of faith cannot be in vain in the Lord. And then, as so often, just a line to the unconverted and uh, you wonder perhaps how many, after a sermon like that, may have been converted by a, a single line with the blessing of God. I ask you not to work. I ask you not to sow, but come to Jesus Christ and to look to his cross. For one look at Christ will save you. And if a man has been so sowing and weeping, would we be surprised to find that some five or ten or even uh, twenty or fifty or a hundred or two hundred having seen this man's earnestness and urgency in the sowing of gospel seed, should have understood that he was speaking to them and pleading with them, and that they, hearing of this Christ, must come and believe in that gospel which men like Spurgeon and men like us today, women like us today, Christians like us today, go on sowing. My friends, we probably don't sow enough I certainly think we don't weep enough. Where I am, and I've said this, I think, before, maybe not on this podcast, if a preacher weeps, people think he's got an allergy or a cold or needs some kind of medication or whatever it may be. 
Oh, for more weeping preachers, that we might weep in private over souls. And when it's proper and as it's appropriate, that we might weep in our hearts and from our eyes as we speak of this Christ and that he might be pleased for the glory of his name and for the honour of his Father to give us our increase, that we may return with our sheaves rejoicing because of the fruit of our gospel labours. I hope you'll join me again next week to, to learn more from the heart of Spurgeon. As I've mentioned, it's Sermon 876, The Unwearied Runner. And if you want to see more, learn more, sign up for this, uh, then you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts, find from the heart of Spurgeon, and there'll be other resources, including a, a documentary film on Spurgeon's life through the eyes of Spurgeon, which all of which we hope will be a blessing to you. But until you listen again, uh, God bless you. And we trust this has been useful for your soul and an encouragement in your service. May God make us fruitful. Amen. <laughs>